Friends, if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51, Psalm 51, and that's on page 474 in your pew Bibles if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, Psalm 51. So as I made mention in the welcome, you see here there's a title to Psalm 51. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And I think this might be one of the most salacious and most famous stories of sin in the Bible. That anybody who hasn't read the Bible, they'll plead that they know about Nathan and some woman. They may not know that it's Bathsheba, but that's who, what her name was and that's who it was. And so we're told here in Psalm 51 that, that, Na- that, uh, that David penned this psalm after being confronted by Nathan. And we, can, we got to get the context of this in order to be able to understand this passage and what it means for us as we seek to repent of our sin. And so by way of reminder, you see this passage. You, you re- we read of this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And then we see this confrontation by Nathan the prophet with David in chapter 12. See, David had risen to power as king, as the king of Israel. He was a, a sheep herder, and he writes a song, and he says, you know, God raised me up from the sheep, and now I'm overseeing this multitude of people. I am the king of Israel, and he sent his army to battle, we read in, in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And, and this, this very uh, curious phrase that, that when kings go out to battle, David stayed. David stayed at his palace and he sent his armies out to battle to go do his dirty work, as it were. And he was by himself on a roof. And, uh, you know, the the roofs at that time, and you can still go to the Middle East and they're, for the most part, this way. uh, They're flat. And so to cool off in the middle of the day, you'd go up to cool off, let the breeze blow over you. And uh, he was looking and he happens to see a woman bathing. And uh, he lusts after her in his heart, and he sleeps with her. He commits adultery with her. And in order to cover up his sin, he murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who we read is one of his mighty men, one of his most trusted confidants. He murders him. He puts him on the front lines to have him killed so that he could try to hide what he had done. He tried to keep his sin secret. But we read at the end of the story, these harrowing words from 2 Samuel. It says this, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, when her grieving was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. See, David thought that he could just pretend like all was well. He thought he had gotten away with murder, quite literally. And if you and I are honest, if we're honest, if we didn't think we'd get caught, how many of us would sin? How many of us would be content with those little sins that we do in the dark and by ourselves, whether it be something that we shouldn't be watching whether it be something that we shouldn't be thinking, whether it be something that we shouldn't be saying. We think that it's not hurting anybody because, you know, I'm not doing it out in public. And so we harbor those sins to ourselves. 
How many of us, how many of us are in our own lives, if we're honest, are harboring sins that have brought to life, if brought to light, if other people would see it, we'd be ruined. We know that our reputation would just go to down the toilet. And how many of us are hoping and praying that that sin, those sins are never found out. And we work really hard to try to make sure that nobody looks at our browsing history. Or nobody knows what I said about that person. How many of us are harboring and keeping that sin in the secret, in the dark? See, David had risen to power. And he thought he could do what he wanted. And he could. And a lot of people probably would have said, you know what, you're the king, you can do whatever you want. Well... We see that success and fame, really what it does is it brings to light that which was already in our hearts. And that's what happens with David. He, he rises to power and what was already in his heart, this proclivity towards sin, was made manifest because he could get away with it. Or at least he thought he could. But see, God doesn't let that be the end of the story. And he won't let that be the end of your story either, that, that you and I can keep that sin hidden. Whatever it is, and you can, you can use your imagination for what I'm thinking of. Whatever that hidden sin is, and it's different for each one of us, God, in his mercy, won't let that stay hidden, I promise you. If you continue to walk with Jesus, it will be found out. And the reason it will be found out is for your good. Because you can be healed only when the sin is brought to light. Because this is the last thing we hear at that story. The last words of that story are actually this. Because remember he said that David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife. Well, these are the last words. But the things that David had done displeased the Lord. And quite literally, in the original language, it says, but the things that David did shined in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord saw. What no one else knew, what no one else saw, the Lord saw. And it was like a bright beacon. And there was no hiding. And there is no hiding of our sin, no matter how small it is. No matter how innocent it seems. No matter how much we think that no one's going to know, and it's probably good that they don't know, the Lord sees. There is a bright light that shines, and He sees. And that can be very comforting that the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or that can be very damning, can it? Because we don't want the Lord to see. But my friends, that is the very place in which healing happens, is if the Lord sees. And if the Lord didn't see, if we could, if we could pull a blanket over us... <laughs> We would remain in our sin, but the Lord sees our feet peeking out from underneath the blanket. (laughs) There is no hiding from God, and that's a gracious thing. Because in the next chapter, chapter 12, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David to do what? Quite literally, to bring to light that which was hidden. That's the, the, the terminology that is used in 2 Samuel 12. To bring to light that you thought you could get away with this, David, but I will bring to light all of this. And all of Israel will see. All of Israel will know what you have done. And see, one of the things that we can do when we look at something like 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and then we read Psalm 51 is that we it's all condensed. right? Within two chapters, we see this, this salacious story. 
And then all of a sudden there's resolution. Well, you got to kind of go back there a little bit. He saw Bathsheba at the, in the springtime when kings go out to battle, but he stayed in his palace. And there was several days, weeks, months, right? Because there was at least nine months that we find out that Bathsheba had a baby right after this in 2 Samuel 12. So there were days and weeks and months of him hiding Can you imagine what was going on in his heart? And we get an understanding from Psalm 32 where he's saying, I was rotting on the inside because I was trying to make sure that no one found out. Trying to hedge his bets, trying to make sure that no one knew. And so in the same way, how many times in our sin do we try our best to make sure that no one knows? You're a gossip. And you hope that no one finds out that you gossip about them. Have you ever had this? I just this isn't this isn't in my manuscript. But have you ever uh, been talking to somebody on the phone? Maybe I'm. This is a public confession, I guess, too. Have you ever been talking to somebody on the phone and then you then your spouse or someone says, "Hey, who was that?" And you're like, "Oh man, it was, it was Bob. Man, he's a, such a such a jerk." <laughs> and, you, and you're like, "Oh crud! Was my phone turned on?" You know, and, and you're worried that, "Oh my goodness, what if they heard?" And and I have to confess, if if you've not hung up on me on the phone, then I'll, I'll and you leave it going, I'll, I'll listen for a little bit longer. So so be careful. <laughs> but that's that's what's going on, right? Is that you know, it, 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 we, we may be a gossip, and we think, "Oh crud! If people knew how I talked about them, oh man, they wouldn't be my friend." And that's what's going on here is that we try so hard to want to make sure no one knows. But I promise you, and this is the this is the best place for grace is this place. I'm talking about this physical geographical location is because every single one of us, I, I look at all of us, myself included in this, and that we are sinners and we are in need of a savior, that all of us have sinned and we don't have to hide it. And that's the beauty of it all is that the Lord brings it to light. And when we come to the Lord's table in a moment. We're, we're confessing to the world that we are imperfect and we are sinners. And, and, and there's no healing that can happen when it's in the dark. Can you imagine if you got cut and there's infection in there and you just wrap it up and try to keep it hidden and try to make sure nobody sees that wound? What happens? It rots you and it kills you. But it's by unwrapping, by bringing it to the light, by pouring alcohol into it. That you can receive healing. And that's the beauty of what we see in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is going to teach us what it looks like to repent. What what does true repentance look like? There are three sections here. And that forms our our outline for our what is repentance. So we're going to look at intimate confession. Intimate confession. That's verses 1 through 6. Intimate conversion. Intimate conversion, and that that's verses 7 through 12. And then intimate hope, which is verses 13 through 19. So intimate confession, intimate conversion, and intimate hope. And I use that adjective not just so that I have a, a nice word, but, but each one of these things is going to reveal itself as we walk through it. So intimate confession. So these are all parts of repentance. Okay, all parts of repentance, what true repentance is. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Throughout this psalm, there are 20 petitions. If you were to mark it out, and I went through with a, with a little pen, and you could go through here. Every time he asked God to do something, there's 20 things he asked God to do in this song. Have mercy on me. Blot out. Wash me. Cleanse me. 20 times he's asking God to do something for him. And David models for us what true confession looks like. What does confession look like? And so within this first point of intimate confession, there are seven things. And I'm going to go through them real briefly. Don't worry. There's, I'm not going to try to do overtime here by getting a, a two-hour sermon uh, here. But there are seven things of what true confession looks like. And I want us to overlay that with what our confession typically looks like when we're confronted with sin. So first of all, what does David do? How does he model true confession for us. He gets right down to it, doesn't he? He gets down to business immediately. He says, have mercy on me, O God, or mercify me, or mercy me, right? He says, mercy, Lord, have mercy. He gets right down to it. He doesn't build up to something. He doesn't say, I don't feel like confessing yet. No, he was confronted. And he says, you're right, Nathan, have mercy on me, O God. You find yourself trying to look at your circumstances, trying to rationale, make, make some rationale as to why you sin. Well, you, you don't know. You don't know what they're just a constant nag or they constantly bother me. I'm, I'm justified in talking this way about them or in not drawing near to them. I, I'm, I'm good. And that's David doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't he doesn't try to manipulate the situation, say it's not my fault. Look what they did to me. He doesn't try to push blame on anyone. He says, have mercy. He gets right down to business. My encouragement to you is when you see sin in your life, just confess it quickly. This is one of my hardest things in my life is when, when I'm confronted with sin, I'm saying, I, I try, to, try to say, well, you don't understand. I was having a bad day. <laughs> I'm tired. I don't feel good. You don't know what they said to me. Instead of saying, you're right. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Don't put it on your to-do list. Do it. Do it. When God confronts you by a friend, by a family member, by a circumstance, look at it as God's kindness. And, and he's opening the blinds. He's pulling back the curtain. He says, this is grace to you. You don't have to try to say, oh, I'll get to that tomorrow. Do it today. When the Lord confronts you, confess it. Get down to business. Secondly, confession is simple. Confession is simple. Have mercy on me. Doesn't, he doesn't have to journal for five or six pages. He can, but it can be really simple. Here's the situation. 
Have mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Thirdly, confession looks outside of itself for absolution. That's a mouthful. But confession looks outside of itself for absolution. Have mercy, O God. Have mercy, O God. Fourth, there's a recognition of what I have done. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I know them. There's a recognition. While simple, that we looked at just a moment ago, while it's simple, it's not just a general, I'm sorry, God. No. No, you've got to put this again in the context. That, that Nathan is coming to him. He's saying, I know what you did. I know what you did. And, 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 and David's saying, you're right. My sin is ever before me. I see it day and night. The anger. I see the lust. I see the dissatisfaction with the way my life has turned out. And my sin is ever before me. And so he, he, he's saying, well, you know, this is the context. He's been confronted by Nathan and my sin is ever before me. So it's simple, but it's not generic. It's not generic. He says, in essence, he's saying this, God, I'm sorry that I cared more what John thought about me than what you think about me. That's one way to put it. Or maybe, God, I confess that I wanted to be right more than I wanted to obey the truth. Like, call it for what it is. Be, be, be specific, but it can be simple, too. Fifth, there's a recognition of who I am and who God is. And you see that in verses 5 and 6. There's a recognition, uh, not just of what I've done, but a recognition of who I am and who God is. In verses 5 and 6. I was brought forth in, in iniquity. You delight in truth. You see that this, this chasm between this is who I am this is who you are. And we heard this from Romans 5, right? That sin and trespasses, this, this sin was spread to all people. And so death came through Adam. And so, so David is looking at his heart and he says, my, I look at my own heart and I'm not seeing a lot of light there. My, my life, my heart is riddled with sin. And, and in the dark recesses of your life at nighttime, when you're by yourself, have you ever said these words? I just can't get it right. I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting with sin. I just can't do it. And you look at your heart and you're like, there's nothing there. There's no light there. And David realizes that. He says, in my heart, I was born in iniquity. That's what, that's what I was conceived in, in sin. In sixth, we see a foundation of who God is. So not only is there a recognition of who I am and who God is, but there is a foundational understanding of who God is and who He has revealed Himself to be. There is a foundation of who God is and who He has revealed Himself to be. Go back to verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and abundant mercy. According to your steadfast love and abundant mercy. This, this phrase, this steadfast love, this abundant mercy, these are covenantal words that God has used to reveal himself. In fact, he revealed himself to David in 2 Samuel 7 where he says, My steadfast love will not depart from you, David. 
I will make a covenant with you. I will build you a house. And so David is looking at his life. He's looking at his heart. He's saying, not based upon what I've done, God, but based upon what you have said and what you have done for me in the past. You delivered me from the lion. You delivered me from the bear. Will he not also deliver me from this Philistine? Yes, you delivered me from this Philistine. Will you not deliver me from this pit of despair and from this sin? The Lord is faithful. The Lord is steadfast. He's steady. He's not going to flip from one side to the other. He's not whimsical. He's not fickle like you and me. Who one day we love God and we're so in love with God. And then the next day we're like, oh, I'm empty. No, the Lord is steadfast towards you. He looks on you. And while he sees your sin shining as a beacon, he also sees you. He sees you and he loves you and he draws near to you. And so what we see here is David and you and I don't get out a ledger. We don't we don't pull out a piece of paper and we say, OK, God, I know that I messed up, but I gave 10 percent to the church this week. And I said hello to that person that's really difficult. And I didn't lie when I was asked about that. And Lord, I worked really diligently We don't get a ledger, and David doesn't get a ledger either, of his rights and his wrongs. Hmm. The only way that David is going to get this mercy that he's seeking is if he is broken. If he understands that I am bankrupt. I I look at the ledger of my life, and I see, oh yeah, I did say hi to that person that was really difficult, but I didn't really want to. I did tell the truth, kind of, when I was asked about that. I I did give 10%, maybe, or I did, whatever it is. I'm I'm trying to draw this picture for you is that, that we can do all of the things that we think are right and righteous. And yet what God is doing, he's looking at the heart. Even when David was chosen out of all of his brothers, the Lord says, don't look at the external appearance, Samuel. Look, I look at the heart. I look at the heart. And so we have to come to God bankrupt. Bankrupt. And know that he is a never-ending and abundant, steadfast love and mercy. You almost have this picture of this abundant mercy that's overflowing, that's overfilling the banks of this river. And the Lord's saying, I'm coming with, with mercy. Don't damn it up. Don't damn it up by trying to build a life with pebbles. It says, let my mercy overflow your life. Stop trying to get your stuff together and just confess. Just confess. And lastly, seventhly, if that's a word, seventhly? <laughs> I guess I guess so. Seventh, and this is where I drew the word intimate confession, is recognizing the relational nature of our repentance. We're not simply saying, I promise I'll stop doing this, God. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only have I sinned. (laughs) That's a tall order, isn't it? Surely he sinned against Bathsheba. Surely he sinned against the people of Israel. Surely he sinned against his army by putting them at risk. So he could kill one guy. 
I'm sure that Uriah wasn't the only person that was killed. Have you ever considered that? Somebody else probably died too. If Uriah was on the front lines, other people died because of his sin. Surely he sinned against a lot of people. (laughs) Obviously, surely he sinned against Uriah. But he knows that standing behind every single person that he sinned against, behind every single person, the Lord stands. He says, you've sinned against me. Primarily, first and foremost. And so the issue at stake here is not that not that David just broke a law. And that's that's what at least at least in my life I think about sin a lot. In that, huh, I really messed up. Hmm, that stinks. I really broke that law. Hmm. Man. No, what what we need to see here in David's confession is that when you and I sin, yes, we break a law. But more than that, we rebel against the lawgiver. We rebel against the very one who loves us enough to shine light in our lives. We we rebel against the one who's given us his good and perfect and true statutes and laws that are good for us. Hmm. See, our, our sin is never merely transactional in nature. It's not just a mere matter of breaking the law, but it's relational. I rebelled against you, you only have I sinned. So we need to pause and consider our own hearts in this moment, in this first point, before I close this first point. And when sin is brought to light in our lives, what do we do? Do we hedge our bets? Do we make excuses? Do we try to shift blame to other people? Let's just call it like it is, that your slavery to pornography or drugs is first and foremost you not finding contentment in God. Your slavery to being critical of other people, always being right, is first and foremost your belief that you are God and that you are the judge of all. Let's call it what it is, that your slavery to caring more about what other people think about you then being willing to step out in faithfulness is first and foremost you're turning your back on God's overtures of love and acceptance of you. If you care more about what other people think of you than you hear what God says about you and say, hey, it's not that important. Let's just call it for what it is. It's a slavery to another master. And Jesus said you can't serve two. There's only one. And who will he be? So we've seen intimate confession, but we see that true repentance isn't simply a matter of confession, is it? True repentance isn't just confessing with your mouth. Isn't simply that. It's easy to agree that you and I have sinned. We look at our lives and we're like, yeah, of course I sinned. But we learn that true repentance must go deeper than what our lips say. A mere recognition of our wrongs. So that's our second point is that. It requires an intimate conversion, an intimate conversion of the heart. Verses 7 through 12. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Have you ever done something that you know you shouldn't have done and just felt dirty, felt gross? We see that there is a longing, and this is what David is feeling, this, ah, I need to go take a shower. I need to go take five showers. I feel so gross. Wash me. Wash me. Wash me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop. And purify me is another way of saying this. Purify me with hyssop. Wash me. These are, these are words used within the covenant of what God's people would do. They would purify themselves when they went to the temple. These are, this is ceremonial cleansing language. This is purification that was done at the temple. So quite honestly, our culture and even our Christian subculture can downplay the importance of going and worshiping with other people, can it? It's like, oh, I can do that. I'll get to that. It's an accessory as opposed to something very germane and very foundational to our life in Jesus is what we're doing right here. And we can often downplay this because it takes effort to get up on Sunday morning. (laughs) It takes effort to get the kids wrangled and in the car. It takes effort and sometimes... Quite frankly, we're just like, I don't it's not that important. I'll listen to it online. But, but we see here that there is a, a essential nature of what David says about going to the temple, about being with God's people. See, some people say they worship God by themselves in the woods, right? Well, I, I do too. I worship God in the woods, but that's not to the exclusion of being with God's people. David wants to go to the temple. He longs to be with God's people. He longs to be with the very people who will tell him about grace. Tell him about the goodness of God. And that's what it behooves us as God's people to consider when we interact with one another is that we are called to speak those things into each other's lives. That that you are sinful, but you have been washed. You've been cleansed. Not just from the outside, but from the inside. Right? Because that's what true repentance does. True repentance isn't simply a matter of externals. And that's what David shows us here, is that true intimate conversion is, one, one, it's going to the temple, it's hearing God's word, it's external. God does care what we do with our bodies. It's not just a matter of him redeeming our souls, but he redeems our bodies too, because he does care what we do with our hands and with our eyes. But he cares... Where that flows from. That that true repentance requires an internal reality. Right? Verse 6. You delight truth in the inward being, in the secret heart. And we see it again in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. See, God is not after mere outside conformity. And parents, we need to hear this. Is that God is not wanting you just to conform your kids to some kind of obedience structure. And as our Heavenly Father, He's not just seeking to get just mere obedience. And oftentimes, as parents, that's what we can want, isn't it? I just want them to listen. But God wants you as a parent, and He wants me as a parent, and He wants us as children to let His truth go deeper. 
To not just get mere outside conformity. Because there are a slew of people who had outside conformity. And the Lord on the last day will say, I never knew you. You did mighty things in my name, but I never knew you. So the Lord is not merely pleased with outside conformity. And we need to hear that. He does care what we do with our hands. But he cares more about where that's overflowing from. All right, I'll do it. I'll, I'll clean this room. That's, that, that's not pleasing for the Lord. That's not what he's after. He's after a clean heart, a new spirit that is renewed. And I'll just make mention this really quickly, is that this Holy Spirit departing from me, this is language that David is using in reference to what he knows about Saul. Do you remember the Holy Spirit rushed upon Saul? And what happened when Saul disobeyed? That the Holy Spirit was taken from Saul. So so this is not about Christians who can lose the Holy Spirit. Let me just say that real briefly. That's not what this is about. This This is particular to David about, Lord, I do not want to lead your people. Just like Moses said, I don't want to lead your people if your spirit won't go with me. And so David's saying, don't take that from me like you took it from Saul. I know that, that I am hanging by a thread here. Please, I need you. And that's this relational element that, Lord, I need you. And do you feel that in your own heart? Or you more succumb to the fact that you messed up rather than you rebelled against God. That's what we need to hear from this. So never settle for simply doing the right thing, my friends. But do the right thing from the right motivation. If the motivation isn't there, what do you do? You ask God. You ask God to change the heart, to change the motivation. You say, God, I don't want to do this. That right there is a great place to start. It's like, God, I don't want to do this. Please create in me a clean heart. See, I mentioned this in the previous point about looking outside for help. And he asked God to do 20 things for him. He looks at his own heart and he sees it as dark and dirty. Not only does he want a shower, but he wants his heart to be pulled, washed, and put back. He despairs of his ability to do right and asks God to do what only he can do. Because what do we see here? Create in me a clean heart. This is the same language of God creating in Genesis 1. The Lord create, Lord, do the work of taking the chaos and the darkness and let your spirit hover over this chaos and this darkness and create, put in order my heart. Create just like you created all that is and all that is seen. Create that in me because I have messed it up. I have taken it and I have made an utter ruin of it. Create in me a garden where you may dwell. Create in my heart a place that is worthy of God himself dwelling. Do that because I can't. Create in me a clean heart. An ordered heart. A heart that is rightly loving the things of God. And once that happens, then something even more beautiful happens. This is our last point. Something even more beautiful happens. Because instead of our hearts simply being cleansed and renewed and converted... We have the calling and the joy to take part in God's program of redemption. Have you ever considered that? And I want us to grasp this so much that it's not just about us getting saved. But that there's something more beautiful that God's called us into. That's our third point. Intimate hope. Intimate hope. Look at verses 13 through 19. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He says, then, after you have done these things, and obviously there are petitions within this this, um, this section here. But he says, after you've done these things, after you've restored to me the joy of my salvation, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Now, this is the same word, transgressors, that he uses in verse 1. My transgressions are before me. I know my transgressions. And that's on purpose. David is saying, when you've forgiven me, God, I will go to the very people that have done the things that I have done, and I will tell them about this salvation that can be had even by them. So that whatever sin you're struggling with, it's not just about you and God and you getting right with God. But that God wants to take it and he wants to use it. He wants to renew it. He wants to take that sin that you're struggling with so that you can help and serve other people. So that you can teach people God's ways, the very things that you did. Such were some of you, said the Apostle Paul. And he wants to take that. Such were some of you. And he wants to take that and say... Now teach others how they can be freed from their addictions. How they can be freed from that sin that you struggled with for so long. So you look at verse 15. Then I will teach transgressors your way. He praises God and teaches people that God is worthy to be praised. Because he can break every chain. Every stronghold. The sacrifices Israel was called to bring were always meant to symbolize one bringing the sacrifice. So when that bull was killed, it symbolized death. It symbolized sacrifice. And he wants something far more valuable than those sacrifices, doesn't he? Look again at verse 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, or I would bring it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The thing brought was always meant to bring and to symbolize the greater reality. That God doesn't want your bull. He doesn't want your goat. He doesn't want your offering. He doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants you. Every bit of you. He wants you body and soul. He wants your heart. That's what he wants, and he will not be satisfied until he has it. And there's this last, really strange section as it relates to intimate hope that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention. And I was going to make a fourth point, but I did not want to keep going, so uh, you can possibly see some of the wrestlings I've had. Because you look at verse 18 and 19, he says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. <laughs> what, a, what a strange way to end this psalm. You have all this picture of David saying, Lord... But do good to Zion and build up her ruins. You see, this is the very point. If you look out through, throughout the remainder of this book, this section of the Psalms, from Psalm 52 all the way to Psalm 72, you see that David was wrestling. David was in pain, right? And you can, I would encourage you to do that in your own time. 
Because David knew that the steadfast love he was calling on didn't end with him. It would continue to his children, to Solomon, and to his children's children. And this is the story that we get throughout the story of redemption, is that God's steadfast love to David would never depart. David put his hope in a future king because he knew that as king, he would always fail to be what God called him to be. And when he was tempted, this future king wouldn't fall. This future king that we heard about in Matthew just a moment ago, that in the wilderness, he did not fail when tempted. He wasn't on the roof looking and said, I will have that. He said, no, I will deny that because I want to do the will of my father and I will not fall in the wilderness. You cannot ascend me to the top of the temple. You cannot give me all of the inheritance of the world. I will not fall. I will not fail. Because the walls of Jerusalem would indeed be destroyed because of Israel's sin. The temple would be destroyed because of Israel's same rebellion. But David, the city, the sacrifices, the temple, they all meant to point to the greater reality who is Jesus. He's all pointed to one who would die, who would be destroyed. And after three days, build it up again. Right? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, it will be raised up. I will raise it up. See, David placed his hope there. And the only way that you and I can have any hope of redemption, of salvation, is by placing our intimate hope in him. It's not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's by saying, do good to Zion because you are good. You are steadfast. And you will make good on your promises. I don't know what sin the Lord has brought to mind by His Spirit, but I, I believe that each one of us has some kind of sin that God has called to mind. Whatever secret sin it is, whatever besetting sin it is that maybe only one other person knows about. So I'd like to, before I close in prayer, just take a few moments of silence, of asking God to break, to break the chains of slavery. To give us freedom that during this Lent season, that whatever sin that you've been struggling with for years, that God would break it. And that's my prayer. And so we're going to just spend a, a few moments in just silence. And then I'll close this in prayer. And uh, while the, while the uh, musicians are singing uh, afterwards, I'll be standing up here. And if you need me to pray for you, I will pray for you. And I, w- I would encourage you to do that. Just to come forward, and I'm, I'm happy to pray for you. I'm happy to ask God to give you freedom from whatever it is. You're not going to shock me. Um, so let's just take a few moments before the Lord and ask Him to do a work in our hearts. Father, there is none righteous, no, not one. Among us, there's not one. And yet there is one, the God-man Jesus. 
who is righteous and good and just and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you, Father, that our salvation does not depend upon our obedience, but you have secured our salvation. You have given us your own spirit so that we might walk in newness of life, so that we might experience joy and salvation and freedom from strongholds, from freedom from slavery that we've grown accustomed to. And yet you will not leave it there. And so we thank you, Father, and we ask you to remind us yet again this morning of our salvation in Jesus and in him alone. We pray it in his name. Amen.